Welcome to the Authors Who Lead podcast. This podcast is dedicated to you, people who want to be inspired by authors, leaders, and the messages they share. This is such an important podcast to us because we help uncover what goes on behind the scenes when authors are writing their book. We talk about the process. We talk about where they get big ideas, and you can listen in on those conversations. We can't wait for you to join us. So let's get started. Hi, everybody. Asul Theronis here with Authors Who Lead. Super excited to have another author here that I've been following for years, John G. Miller. Now, he's the author of QBQ, The Question Behind the Question, Practicing Personal Accountability in Work and, and in Life. And he's the author of several books, actually. We might talk about some of those as well, but he's a keynote speaker. He lives in Denver, Colorado with his wife, Karen, has six daughters, one son, and lots of grandchildren. And we'll dive more into his work and the things that he's done. But let's first welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you, Azul. Great to be here today. You're looking yeah. terrific. Love Thank the shirt. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thank you so much. When I first, I was the principal of a small, actually it was a small, of a school of about 1,400 kids when I first read your book in Round Rock, Texas. And it really struck me because I was really taxed with the idea of turning a school around. Because at that time, the school was one of the few schools that was going to become underperforming. And if that happened, the whole rating of the district would drop. I was a brand new principal. I didn't really know much. But what I did know was that people were not asking the right questions. And that was what was in my mind, is that people were trying to fix this problem with something other than with answers. And really, they're not asking good questions. So when I found your book and asked the staff to read it with me, they were a little resistant, I must say. They were coming from a culture where there was blame culture and it was those kids, those parents, those things. Right. And it really struck me. And so I want to start there and tell you about just thank you and honor you for really helping yeah. me. This was early 2000. So 2004 or something like that. So it was, it, it was quite early when I was leaving that school. And so this book really struck me because for two reasons, one for the simplicity of the message, which is really powerful. And then secondly, how easy it is to read and how yet it fulfilling it felt. So Tell us a little bit about the beginning of this journey, where this came from. Sure. I, I'd love to hear. You bet. I was born in Ithaca, New York in 1958. How's that for way back then? And that's an <laughs> early beginning of the journey right there. And the short story is I graduated from Cornell in 1980. My wife, my girlfriend was 19. We got married that year and moved west with a big company. And we lived in several different states with a big corporation. And I didn't really enjoy sitting at a desk eight to five. And one day, a friend said, why don't you get into sales? And I said, oh, no, not me. He said, yeah, I think you'd be a good salesperson. I found a sales position selling management training, leadership training in Minneapolis, St. Paul. That was the beginning of everything we're talking about today. That was 1986. I was almost 28 when I entered the training industry. I spent 10 years selling training to managers, executives, leaders, <clears throat> excuse me, and um, I sat in about 10,000 hours. I sat in about 10,000 hours of workshops over the next decade, I think. And I started listening and I, at some point, realized people were asking the wrong questions. Like the CEO who once looked at his team of 10 or 11 directors and VPs and said, what do you mean you don't know our mission statement? It's been on the wall for a year. Translation, code talk for what's wrong with you people? And I remember <laughs> sitting in, in that room thinking, well, maybe he should be asking, what can I do to communicate our mission more effectively? In other words, take accountability for that. And then managers would say to me, why can't we find good people? Why don't my people want to work? And then people would ask you, why do we have to go through all this change? And when is someone going to train me? And after about eight or nine years of hearing these lousy questions, I coined a phrase, the question behind the question. 
And I started teaching groups to turn those questions around. So for an example, instead of asking, why don't we have better parents in our schools? Like you were mentioning schools. Why don't we have better kids? What can I do to be a more effective teacher? How can I improve me today? In other words, take personal accountability for my life. And so I, I taught that idea called the question behind the question to a heart valve company in Little Canada, Minnesota. That's the St. Paul suburb. One day in 1994, just I covered it in 20 minutes. And I came back a few months later, I was when they were using it. The VP of ops and the VP of HR were actually talking my language, the stuff I had taught that day. So the short, the shorter story is I left my mentor who had been selling management training for almost a decade. I went off on my own, started teaching this question behind the question. It quickly got shortened to QBQ because we all love acronyms. And here we are all these years later. And uh, my daughter works with me. She's 39 and her name is Kristen. And it's she and I, the two of us are the only ones that go around the country talking about QBQ, the question behind the question and how to practice personal accountability. And along the way, I started writing books. And so I know that's your area of expertise. Yeah. And when I first, honestly, when I first read the book and I saw how I would say masterful it was because its job was to invite me into have you, in my opinion, invite me in to and get you to come speak at my school or get the district to bring you. And I felt like it was a call just enough for me to get what you're talking about, but needing more support. So I remember thinking, this is beautiful. This is the way this book isn't designed. It's enough executives, busy leaders have just enough time in between things on the plane, uh, whatever, to read a book. They don't have you know, time to read these epic books. And if they do, they have a hard time translating them to their people. So I really felt it was really great. So when you wrote the book, I believe I read that you initially did it self-published. Tell me about the journey of the book, because having sure. a workshop, what was the thinking? Like, hey, we need a book because... This, that's a really good question. 1997, my wife and I and the kids had moved down to Denver because I was tired of the Arctic air in Minneapolis. And that's another story. Mosquitoes, too. And we moved to Denver and my career took off. I was traveling all over the country for little tiny firms like State Farm, General Motors, Merck Pharmaceutical, because this QBQ thing was taking off and my speaking career was taking off. I say that humbly, but I was being very blessed and fortunate. So I remember being in Charlottesville, Virginia one day at a State Farm group. I was doing a three-hour session and during the break, somebody came up, two people actually, and said, oh, you've got to put this content into a book. And I remember thinking, yeah, I know, but I'm not a writer. I'm just a trainer. I'm a speaker. I'm not an author, but yeah, I know. Anyway, soon after that, I started writing my first book. And like most young authors, I did a lot of things wrong, but I did publish a book titled Personal Accountability. That was the title because I wanted to own that niche. Azul. I didn't want to be tricky or sneaky. I wanted the world to know we are all about personal accountability here, powerful and practical ideas for you and your organization. That was the subtitle. And my wife and I together, it was all homemade. We designed the cover. We had it printed in Boulder, Colorado, 30 miles from our house. I remember the day I picked up the copies and brought them back to my home. We ran around like a Steve Martin in the movie, The Jerk, saying, the new book's here, the new book's here. <laughs> you got to know the movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And but here's the key. We sold more than 50,000 copies of that paperback. Oh, it was hardcover at first. Hardcover, personal accountability book. And that is a total success in the self-published world. Most books don't sell 5,000 copies. If you go into Barnes & Noble and just turn around, you're going you're gonna to get dizzy with all the titles out there. And most of them are not selling. So that really did quite well. But here's what happened about a year after, two years after it pub we published it. 
who moved my cheese hit the market. And everybody suddenly wanted a book they could read in 23 minutes. And people would say to me, oh, you read Who Moved My Cheese? It took me 23 minutes. And I'd think, are you proud of that? Did you, did you need a goal? Why do books have to be so short? But I finally caught on. And I remember I was in Brooklyn, New York, speaking for on personal accountability in the QBQ. And I called the guy who helps me write books. I have a friend who helped me. And I said, David, we've got to rewrite personal accountability and downsize it. And he wasn't out in the market every day. Like I was, he said, oh, no, it's a great book. We don't need to change a thing. I said, nope. I've just had the 100th person ask me, have you read Who Moved My Cheese? Because it was short. That's right. <laughs> so that was the spring of 01. We went to work within just two months. We had QBQ on the market. What we did is we extracted the QBQ idea from the original personal accountability book. And we went from 300 pages to 110 pages. And that's when the book just took off. And I published it and we did hardcover at first. Then we had some great things happen like Country Inn and Suites owned by Carlson, the company called Carlson up in Minnesota. They came to me and said, we'd like to put it in our lobbies because they had a program where they would give books to guests. And if you returned the book to another Country Inn and Suites anywhere in the world, they would donate $5 to the Lawbach Literacy Foundation. It was a great marketing and goodwill campaign. And I just happened to know the right people. But they said, we're only going to pay you about a buck 50 a book. So I knew I had to get it into paperback. QBQ was in hardcover. So we got it into paperback. They bought 10,000 copies. They put them in their hotels all around the world. And once again, we took off to another level. And then, of course, I'm a salesperson. So every day I was selling cartons of QBQ to my executive clients. So that's the beginning. We sold about 300,000 copies, we think, in paperback of QBQ. And by 2004, here's the irony, life is funny, Penguin came to, Penguin, the publisher came to us and they bought QBQ from us. And what did they publish? Who Moved My Cheese? <laughs> so now <laughs> we were with the publisher of Who Moved My Cheese? And that was 2004, <clears throat> excuse me. And since then, we've had four different editions of QBQ. It's in hardcover only. It never went back to paperback. That's actually a, a compliment to the book. They never, Penguin never put it in paperback. It's only in hardcover. And the paperbacks that I originally printed, they're all gone, except for the 50 copies I'm holding on to in my barn where the horse lives. Okay. <laughs> I actually think I was one of those people that somehow got past a copy of the paperback. That's how I found it. May it, was, have it was a long time ago, but that, that's awesome. I think people missed if you're listening and you've written a book, you wonder how come you can't sell it? Number one, pay attention to the market. That's really important. The market changes. So you got to be aware, but also your ideal reader, your avatar, the person who's consuming it, know who they are. And if you have to pivot, because it can make a huge difference in your work, because the work is more important than the number of words in a book. I would say one of the things that really struck me was I started, when I asked and raised questions, it either inspired or irritated people. <laughs> and one of the mm -hmm. things I learned from your book is questions are powerful. In fact, the questions are the only thing that will shift an organization quickly. The wrong questions will shift it down the tubes and the right questions will get the right people to take action. I found that Good. the book couldn't get everyone to take action. I had to be honest, but I only needed to get the 20% of the people that basically inspire the other 80% to take action. And if they were taking action, then the rest of them would eventually either side with one or the other. And I wanted them to side with the people who were taking action. And QBQ was really a book that helped us 
ask questions that actually change the culture and environment of that school. Because I had a charge. I had a year and a half to turn a school around that was failing and I needed to ask different questions. I needed to stop asking the questions of that were being asked. So here's my other question about this book. I love the examples. So you obviously you have a whole career of training and teaching. When people go to write books, it's so important to include examples and illustrations. And I love the ones from about Jacob and the restaurant. It always stuck with me and how powerful that moment was. Maybe you can share it so people can hear it. It's so important to hear when you when you don't use blame and you take accountability for even what can be perceived problems in an organization, in a day, in a moment. Sure. Now, would you like me to share the Jacob story or talk about blame? I'm sorry. I just want to make sure I understand. Yeah, let's talk about J- the Jacob story as it relates to blame. Yeah. Maybe that would be well, good. Well, here's the key to writing a book, especially in today's society. As we already indicated, it can't be too long. And uh, so we, that's how QBQ took off as we... You said something earlier in this interview, Azul, that I want to just latch on to quickly about reading the book on an airplane. I can remember when the QBQ first came out, I got a call from a woman, an assistant, who said, my my boss wants to buy 50 copies of your QBQ book. And we got talking and I said, wow, how did this happen? He said, she said, well, he bought it at W.H. Smith Hudson, the bookstore at the airport in Asheville. And he flew to Chicago, like a one hour flight. And in that hour, he read all of QBQ. So that was key. In one hour, he read the whole book and said, I got to have more. Now, here's why it touched him. In his organization, like every organization, he was seeing finger pointing and whining and blaming and procrastinating on people waiting for a clearer vision, waiting for someone to tell them what to do. This is what frustrates executives. This is what keeps them up at night. And so we just happened to touch a nerve with QBQ about the whole blame thing. Most successful people will basically say, can we just solve the problem instead of finding out who did it, who was wrong, who made the mistake? Let's stop searching for culprits. I did write another book called Outstanding, 47 Ways to Make Your Organization Exceptional. And one of the chapters is all about stop seeking culprits. So if you look at the Jacob story, chapter one of QBQ, it's all about a guy who was busy in the rock bottom restaurant. He wasn't supposed to be covering the bar area. I was sitting at the bar waiting to be waited on for lunch. I didn't have a lot of time. He ran by me carrying dirty dishes on a big tray. He stopped and he simply said, sir, how can I help you? And I said, I've been in a hurry. I just want a salad, maybe a roll. And, uh, and so I, he said, what do you want to drink? I said, I'll have a Diet Coke. It's my favorite. And that's when he said, ah, oh, we don't sell Coke. I said, oh, water and lemon's fine because they only sold Pepsi products. I, he said, great. And he took off. And a few minutes later, he's back with the salad and the roll and the water and the lemon. And this is the very key point of that story. I was happy. I wasn't dissatisfied on any level. I wasn't thinking, oh, they don't have Coke products. Darn. I just was, everything was good. But suddenly he returned with a Diet Coke. And the short story is he had sent his manager down the street to a grocery store to buy me a bottle of Diet Coke. And since that story came out, I've had a lot of people say, oh my gosh, we just had a Jacob Miller moment. Now the restaurant server was named Jacob Miller. My name is John Miller. There is no relation. But I've had people say, you know, they asked for mustard at a restaurant. They don't carry mustard. And all of a sudden the server went across the street and bought a bottle of mustard for their family who loves mustard. And then they'll read our book and they'll go, I had a Jacob moment. 
So you see, the key to that is Jacob could have said, who's supposed to be covering the bar area? Why don't we get more people? When are we going to get better training? Why don't managers coach more effectively? When are we going to get a clear vision? Why doesn't the customer just ask for what we have on the menu? He could have blamed the customer. But, oops. but no, he just said, can I do to serve you, sir? Yeah. And then he asked his manager to go get me a Diet Coke. And I've been telling the story ever since. And that's chapter one of QBQ. But the day, the very day we get rid of blame and finger pointing, our life is so much better. 100% agree. And it's one of the reasons I, I had, I wanted my staff to read it. They're all very reluctant, to be honest, for teachers, educational people tend to be reluctant reading books, especially when you're assigned by their leader. But one of the things yeah. I was trying to help them understand from every level was, let's imagine even the person, the receptionist, if she saw a student wandering, the very first thing she would say, where are you supposed to be? And I said, what would happen if you just said, how can I help you be where you're supposed to be? Yeah. Start thinking differently about what you're saying with these questions. If they're, you're yeah. accusing them of being in the wrong place at the wrong time, perhaps they are, but that's not the way to, to help anyone. I don't care that they're 12, 13 years old. They still need so to be You're not building a relationship. You're not building any goodwill. There might be a time to discipline, but at first, let's start off with something kinder and gentler, like you just said, Azul. Yeah, that, but that was a simple premise to me that I felt like it was that was in every chapter, like it's an iteration of how this, the, the accountability part was really important because if you, the way that the book reads, if you're listening, the, when you have a sense of accountability, you can't be a victim. You really no. aren't a victim. And that's the great thing. I think that's the thing. If everyone's a victim of the system, of the parents, of their school, the, no yeah. one ever will have results. And that's the thing I was trying to teach them. Stop trying to create some sort of victim. And that's why I really felt like the school started to shift. I started asking a question that was interesting because one of the things I started to wonder from a very young age, I asked this question every year I was in education, which was, I asked the kids, what makes a good teacher great? I just wanted to know what's the difference between a good teacher and a great teacher. And what kids told me was totally surprising because it isn't what I expected and isn't anything that adults would say. I asked this, I collected 26,000 responses to this question. What makes a good teacher wow. great? And I looked at and analyzed it. And really the power behind the question is accountability. Teachers mm -hmm. who are reluctant to ask this question are afraid that they might get something that they're not. So they don't ask. Everything right. the kids said, I pretty much wasn't doing. And instead of going for a lot of years, for a decade, I was like, these kids don't know anything. I just, but I kept <laughs> asking that question, to be honest. And eventually it struck me, God, I just haven't been listening. I yeah. haven't been listening. I've been asking this question and they've been telling me things and I didn't notice. And I think that's why the heart of when I came to your book, I really was really thinking about questions in a different way. Tell me a little bit about how, when you go into an organization to help them who seem to have a blaming problem, or they're not seeing the power behind the questions that they ask, what's the first sign that you see that there's an opportunity for you to help them? It's called externalizing and excuse making. Hey, I'm not the problem. The problem is always out there. The problem is the market. The pro we do tend to mo work mostly as well with for-profit corporations. I've done a lot of sessions for uh, educational systems, schools, and all that. In fact, my daughter, Kristen, is in Texas today speaking for an educational association in Waco. So mm. we, we still work in the educational field, but most of our clients are Lowe's Home Improvement, the big companies. But when you start talking to people and you basically find out that there's a litany of excuses slash reasons slash external things going on that have caused us not to meet our results, then you know, 
QBQ is very much in need. And again, most executives, pretty much most of them got there by being good problem solvers. And now they get frustrated because what they see is different departments pointing finger at each, fingers at each other. They see people whining or complaining. Now we all whine and complain. I'm not saying executives are exempt, but you said something very key earlier about knowing your market, knowing your reader. People come to me now and say, John, how do I write a book? How do I sell a book? It does start with knowing your market. Who's going to buy this book? Because I'm a Christian, I tend to attract some Christians who want to write books. And I say, that's great, but don't expect it. Probably there are definitely wealthy Christian authors, but don't expect to write a book and sell it to churches and get rich. You got to know what you're shooting for. Who's going to buy this book? Who's going to pay for this book? And also very key question, will people buy it for other people? The right. only way a book goes viral is because people buy it for others. And that's what happened with QBQ, because here's the key, as well, everybody wants everybody else to be personally accountable. If only those people would stop whining and blaming, life would be better. Look at our culture today. Look at our political system. We've got politicians wanting people to feel like a victim so they'll get their vote. Yeah. We try to encourage people to be victims. We should be doing the opposite. We should be encouraging people to ask, what can I do to contribute today? And how can I be my best? But people, so thus people buy this book, QBQ, and they give it to other inside corporations because they don't want them to be victims. They don't want them to play the victim. They want them to get the job done. So I could go on and on with how to sell QBQ, but the key is you need to know who's going to buy your book and will they buy it for others? Yeah. No, that's a great point. And I often tell my authors who are trying to come up with what they think is a best-selling book idea and say, you know, the premise of a book, in my opinion, is that it's so easy to carry. You can pick it up with two fingers and pass it to someone. The message isn't complex. It isn't difficult to understand. It isn't, I need to read it three times to get it. It should be so easy that people can talk about your book without even finishing it. And that's the part that's hard for authors because they think that books are words. And I say, no, books are ideas that are held by words. Ideas are more important than the words. The words can get in the way of really good books because you're thinking that you have to overstuff a book with your proof that you're the right person or your evidence that you're smart. And really, people who write books to try to imitate others, it's great, but we don't know who you are. If you try to imitate Malcolm Gladwell, who's a prolific researcher, then you start writing a book to imitate him instead of writing the book that you can write that will be impactful. And the message is more important. So as you write these other books, because obviously... People want more of you and more of the work. And you've referenced a few. What were your impetus for beginning or starting to write those books? When we first came out with the book, Personal Accountability in 19, the summer of 98, and brought home those copies right here to this house where I'm standing now in Denver, Colorado. I've been here 25 years now. We started selling that book. That was 300 pages. We still have some copies around, of course. It covered QBQ, but it also covered what we call these 10 pillar principles. Ideas like creativity and ownership and courage. These were things I had learned selling to corporations. When we extracted QBQ from it and came out with that first book in 2004 that took off, that's all we took out of the personal accountability book was QBQ, that that concept. And Penguin, now Penguin Random House, had bought two books from us, QBQ and a book to be named later. So then we wrote Flipping the Switch a couple years later. And that extracted five pillar principles from 
the original personal accountability book. So what we really did with, this is funny, you'll laugh at this. We wrote a book of 300 pages that sold X, but then we decided to break it in half and make it two books. And then we sold 10 times X. <laughs> yeah. Because the market wanted shorter books. They didn't want a big, thick book. Yeah. I've got, a, I won't mention the books, but there's some famous books out there that have done better than we have. But still people say, yeah, I handed that book out to my people and it didn't go very far. They just couldn't or wouldn't get through it. Yeah. So obviously brevity helps, but that's not the secret to QBQ. The secret to QBQ is it struck a nerve about personal accountability and everybody wants everybody else to be more accountable. So you need to be thinking if you're going to write a book, why would people buy it for themselves, but also why would they buy it for others? And I want to make sure I get another point in here, two, two more points about being an author as well, because I know that's your specialty. Number one, young authors or new authors, bar none, you are the only salesperson for this book. Yeah. It is your baby. Your publisher's not going to do what you want them to do. Your friends aren't going to talk about it as much as you're going to talk about it your spouse, whatever, they are not going to sell the book. You are the salesperson for your book. Bar none, there's nobody else but you, because you are the one that owns it emotionally. You wrote it, you believe in it, you're excited about it. Do not write a book and think the phone is going to ring. That's right. You've got to be the salesperson. Now, the second point before I lose my train of thought <laughs> is no one, absolutely no one can write a book alone. It cannot be done. Even as my daughter, Kristen, and I work daily on Facebook posts and emails to our list and stories we write up, not writing books, but just writing a brochure we're working on right now, an online brochure. She can write a sentence and think it's good. And I'll go, I think we can improve it. I'll write a paragraph. I think, yeah, that's perfect. And she'll say, dad, you're losing me. I can make it better. It is amazing how two people can do so much better in writing and putting together words than one person. It doesn't mean you have to have a co-author, but you've got to find somebody willing to say, that's not making sense to me, John. Let's start over. <laughs> Let's rewrite that paragraph. You just cannot do it alone. Yeah, 100% agree with that. I always tell people a little bit of the problem that we have for writing is comes from schools. I take accountability for that. I was an English teacher for a lot of years, oh. was that... We trained kids to be editors, not writers, meaning we're less concerned about what their original thinking or what they care about. We want more of them to perform to a means of an end. What's the grade? So they edit themselves to the grade. If they're an age student, they say, what does it take a day? If they're the kind of student just passed, they edit to get the passing grade. They're less concerned about, is this meaningful? Does this matter? And we've trained them all the way through college this way. They're like, uh -huh. what's the goal? What's the grade? When you take away that, people are really lost about how do I know if it's going to be good? And so they get worried and obsessed about things that aren't writing. Writing is a, an expressive art to show what you really mean about something. Sure. It doesn't mean to do it, but it's also a team sport, not of hide my paper from you or like we had did in school. Don't look at mine. I'm doing mine. You do yours. It takes, it really does take several people to make a book good. It takes yeah. one person perhaps with an idea, but the writing part is, is very true. And to your first point, Yes, you are the salesperson for your book. I run a publishing company as well. And I have some authors like, what are you going to do? I was like, wait a second. It's your book. If you're already tired of your book, month two, we have a problem. <laughs> yeah, we you, have a big problem. You're not, birthdays are an event, but it's celebrating the whole year. You're, you can't just celebrate your book's launch. You have to raise this child 
It's not just a birthday party you get to throw. Good Raise man. it all the life of a book. And if you're not willing to give it its entirety of a life, then you shouldn't write the book or you shouldn't expect anything to happen. But if you commit to it and you if you grow tired of it, yeah. the rest of us will won't even notice you. We're the audience isn't tired of it. You are. So that's the problem. So I really appreciate you saying that. I want to just jump in real quickly on that wonderful point you just made. If you're already tired of it, this is the book we're talking about, QBQ. Okay, fine. But I've got three or four other books here. Flipping the Switch, Raising Accountable Kids, Outstanding. We've got a QBQ workbook. Here's what people ask me all the time. When's your next book coming out? What will be your next book? And I say, I'm 64. I love selling QBQ. I don't need to write any more books. I don't want to start repeating myself. I don't want to be that author who says the same thing in every book he writes. I am so excited still to sell this message of accountability in 2022 and 23 and 24. I am not bored with it. I'm excited about it. It's fun to sell. It's fun to teach. My daughter's doing it for since 2008. She's been with me as well, speaking on QBQ. But the point of that is, You don't have to write the next book. Are you selling the book you've already written? That's the key question. And that's what I'm just pretty good at sticking with. I want to go off and write five more books and have all of them barely sell. I want to make this one the bestseller it is. No, and I really appreciate that because yes, I think writing another book is great particularly if that's something you really want to do, but it's not to escape the other book. (laughs) It's really to support it. Maybe you have something else to say, like you said, there's more in the content and and a single idea. Sometimes it's, I always say they're like rabbits. You have one idea and they birth other books. It just happens. I gotta tell you, I don't have anything else to say. Now that sounds maybe cheaply humble, but I just, authors and speakers who pretend they have 25 books in their head. I'm sorry. I just don't think it's possible, or at least they're all smarter than I am. I've got these few books in my head. I can teach this stuff with passion. I don't have anything else to tell you. That's about it. <laughs> yeah, I love that. There's not much going on up here, as okay. <laughs> <laughs> I try. I tried to help people understand the simplicity of books. I was like, "There's." Let me just give an example. I had a, a, a client who came to me said, "I look. I've written a couple of books, but I really want to write a book that's from in here." I was like, "Okay, tell me more about this." They're like, "I don't want to be the Kickstarter queen anymore." I wrote a book about how to do the launch your book on that Kickstarter platform and how to do it and how to make money. And it was very lucrative because I'm tired of being that person. I was like, I go, cause you wrote a book about a thing, not about you, about what you believe, what your values are. And if your values aren't going to shift much, you could stick with that. But if you write a book about the fad or the thing and you move on, yeah, that book still gets to follow you. It doesn't, it doesn't go away. So really think about your book as a principle of value and belief, a virtue, perhaps even more so that if you move on, this book will still have value wherever you go. That's why, even though I'm not in education anymore, I was there 24 years, but the idea of writing a book about the topic, what makes a good teacher great, would still be meaningful to me because they still believe in the principles of listening to children. That hasn't changed and it won't change. It's a simple premise. It doesn't change because of me. It's just an observation I made of, out of all these years about what I was doing wrong the whole time. And I, so I tell people, like, just hang on to the simple notion that you still believe in and won't change. I can't promise you you won't change, but more than likely, if it's a virtue or value or beyond a thing, you'll hold on to it longer. Because principles and truths never change. Correct. That's why why this book, excuse me, on personal accountability, normally I don't tell audiences, hey, I first wrote it in 2001, because then people go, oh, it's out of date. Right. 
It's about personal accountability, getting rid of blame, victim thinking, and procrastination. You got those problems? Oh, yeah, of course. They're human problems. They're never going to go away. The principle is accountability. Yeah. No, and that's why I love it still. And I was really excited. It was just as when I reread it because I got it and I reread it. I was like, this is just as meaningful as it was then when I first read it. Just as insightful and just as valuable for an organization or an individual. Because that's the thing I realized, like, I could change. I knew that if I read this book and I did that, I, if I could change the whole organization could change how that happened. I was like, I don't know how they'll do it, but I can only control me. Even if as the leader, I would like everyone to read this or make a change. The only way it will change is if I apply what this book's teaching and it's still no longer blame the district or those parents or this school or any of that. I just had to ask different questions. And I really think that's one of the most powerful tools that QBQ provides. So after a decade of selling, or maybe more before you wrote this book, what were the ways in which this book started to surprise you? What surprised me, and I've touched on it, but I don't mind repeating it, is that people were buying it, and it's going to sound a little on the haughty side, they were buying it in cartons. So we came up with a buy a box program. It was just a good phrase. It was on our website 20 years ago. I'd be embarrassed to look at that website now. But we were selling boxes. Buy our box. Now you can get 12, 24, 36, 48, 60 copies in a box. <laughs> and people were buying boxes of the book. And I think that's what pleasantly, of course, surprised us so early that it went viral, but people were happy to buy a box of books. Yeah. yeah. That's great. And I also, wait a minute, there were another thing. People were coming up to me and saying, oh my gosh, I can use this at home. But can you write a parenting book? And so we quickly saw how QBQ was being used in all areas of life. You attend a church, it's getting used there. You raising kids, it's getting used there. You have a husband or a wife, it's getting used there. You're an ex- executive, it's getting used there. So Finally, my wife and I at Penguin's Encouragement came out with raising accountable kids because we got thinking if people need it in a parenting format to, in their minds, apply it daily at home and raise accountable children who take ownership for their lives, let's do it. So we did that. But so the two things that surprised me is how it sold by box form. And secondly, how people were using it in all areas of life. About three years ago, I had a phone call with some veterans who were in a PTSD group. And one of the guys named Ivan uh, Azul was from the Vietnam era. So that put him in at that time about 70 years old. And they were all reading QBQ and it was run by a psychologist, this group in Florida, all these veterans were reading QBQ to help them not play victim and to deal with their PTSD. We've had people using it in prison systems, prison fellowship programs. So it's, it went so viral that really did catch me off guard. Yeah, no, that, that's amazing. And one of the things that I observe is that when books take off, they have their own life. But when you said you sell books in, in cartons, I was speaking to the creator of Pictionary. He was on the show here once. He wrote a book called Game Changer. Really oh. interesting story. He's a, he was a 26-year-old broke waiter who remember playing this game as a kid and a college kid and decided he would just try to create this board game. It's the eighties, no internet, just did it. It's a really interesting story. And afterwards we were talking about things and he's like, I really want to know how to sell more books. I said, you want to know how to sell more books? Let's stop asking people to buy a book. He's wait a second. How's that going to be helpful? I said, 
start asking people to buy multiple copies of your book. Ah. You'll double your sales by saying, could you buy one for you and a friend? They'll do what you say, buy a box, they'll do it. But you have to give them a reason. One, the book has to be good. And two, stop telling them to buy a single copy because they're going to perform whatever you ask them to do, especially if they're fans or they care or they want to help. So that's a really good point. If you offer some sort of opportunity for people to purchase more, they will. And let me just jump in again, because if people don't know about your book, I'm going to say this is the way my brain works. I'm going to say something so simple. You're going to go, you're going to yawn. If people don't know about your book, they can't purchase it. When you're brand new on the market, how do you get people to know about it? You give it away. My my daughter, Kristen, came up with a line long before she worked with me as a teen. (laughs) She said this. Bump into my dad at the airport and pretend you do not know him and he will give you a free book. (laughs) Pretend you don't know him, he'll give you a book. Because she had been witnessing her dad as a high energy sales guy, now author, giving books away, not to everybody on the street, but we certainly gave away thousands. Yeah. And what we did is seed the market. And if you give books away, the opposite of that is a friend told me this quick story about a friend of his who had written a book and he brought 20 copies to a backyard picnic and he tried to sell them at the picnic. Yeah. And I remember that I remembered that lesson. I thought, don't want to be offending people, don't want to look hokey or cheesy in any way, or like you're broke or desperate. So we started giving books away. And of course, that made a big difference. And that's, I was sharing that with another author just recently. And he said, you know what, it just hadn't crossed my mind. So he got 10 more copies. And he took them to Florida to a conference. And he just started handing them out because he just never, he never thought he should give it away. Yeah, you got to give some away. Yeah, absolutely. It's the price of, of marketing your book is word of mouth. Like you said, if someone feels like they were given something of value that one, they'll hang on to it. And two, if it is valued, they'll talk about it. And that's well, you what know, you want. Funny. I'm a speaker. So I'd get a call from somebody who'd say, who would say, uh, we'd like to hire you maybe. And I'd say, how did you hear about us? And sometimes they'd say, my boss said, you gave him a book on the airplane in 2006. <laughs> <laughs> and I go, I don't remember, but great. <laughs> That's awesome. I think that is that is the key because number one, it's generous. It's a generous thing. Yes, it's our own book or whatever. Sure. It, it could be self, but it is. You could well, tell not, just tell it's them. It's not selfish. It. That's for sure. It's surely not selfish. That book. Yeah, you're paying for it. You wrote it. You could easily wait till it sells. But I think that's the beauty of something so simple of the message of your book. If you were going to give any advice to a would-be author, an author who's just starting out, most of the people I serve and listen to this podcast are leaders, people who have some role outside of being an author, they're not necessarily trying to make their living as a book writer. Like I try to tell them, look, if you're going to build a life as an author, it should be built with like, it's a hubcap. And then you have other parts of the car. You can't just have hubcaps if you want to go somewhere. But what advice would you give authors who are starting out or thinking that a book might be something they can use to leverage their thing? Start yesterday. What are you waiting for? Okay, it might not sell a million copies, but until you start, you'll never know. So get going. I've had a couple of friends over the years who have said, yeah, I know I got to write that book. And they just don't get around to it. I could say you can't write a book alone, which I've said here. You got to be the chief salesperson. You got to give some away. I could give all that advice. But right now I'd say start yesterday, get going, start writing it. And you've got to write it. Way back in 97, we still lived in Minneapolis. When I knew I had a book in here somewhere, I actually hired 
a ghostwriter, and that did not work. He was a wonderful guy, loved him, but he couldn't put my thoughts into his words and make it effective. And so we shook hands. I paid him. We never did business again because I knew finally I had to write it myself. But then when I actually wrote it and sent it to another good friend, he called me the next day and said, John, I just read your book. I need to introduce you to a person over here who can help you make it better. That's when I learned you can't write a book alone. Yeah. But the key is still get started. Yeah. What are you waiting for? Great advice. I tell people it, it only took me 30 days to write my first book, but 24 years to think about it, worry about it, obsess about it. And that's, that, that's not, I wouldn't do that again. I want to encourage you all to, it's not about the amount of time you put into it to make it great. It's about who you are on the book. Your uniqueness matters more. And I also, I want, sorry, one other piece of advice. You have got to align yourself with somebody who is not afraid to say that paragraph makes no sense. So if you're going to turn to a spouse and think that he or she is going to be your editor, forget it. It's a very unusual relationship where a loved one can be really honest with what they're reading and tell you it stinks. Yeah. You've got to align yourself with somebody who can be completely objective and say, John, that paragraph stinks. Let's redo it. Yeah. hundred percent. I think that's very challenging to have because you want them to be critical, but it's difficult in any relationship. Oh, oh there's so, a lot of ego in writing. We write something, we think, oh, that's great. And somebody else goes, nope. <laughs> that's right. So that's why I tell people I only write a bunch of crap because then I don't worry so much if it goes in or out. Like, it's go. not good. Right. good. I can start again. It's easy to start again if it's not going to, I'm not attached to it. Like attachment to the thing, it gets too precious and can't kill your darlings, as it said. This yeah. has been amazing. I want to know people, I wanted to share with people where they can find you, connect with you, because I'm sure they're going to want to know where to find you. I always chuckle at that question because years ago, we used to give out 800 numbers and mailing addresses. And now it's like qbq.com. <laughs> Just come to qbq.com. In fact, I shared that website with a guy in a plane recently. And he said, boy, I bet you've had that a long time. And I said, yeah, we were very fortunate. We snagged it in 1998 and it's been ours ever since. So just yeah. come to qbq.com. Awesome. Wonderful. It's been a pleasure, John. Thank you so much. This book's really impacted and influenced my thinking over the years. And I was really grateful that you said yes to come on the show. And if you're thinking about writing a book, take the advice of John, just do it. There's no way to know how it'll turn out. You can't promise a book will do a million copies, but you can promise that a book not written will sell zero. Thanks again. We appreciate it. And I look forward to continuing to share and follow your work. Thank you. Thank you for listening again to another episode of Authors Who Lead. We appreciate you being here. And we hope you subscribe so you get this delivered to your device every week. And if you haven't left us a review, please do so. It really helps. And if you have a book in your heart, you've been wanting to write a book, please go to authorswholead.com and join us on this journey of becoming a published author.